The sermon text continues our series through the Ten Commandments. This evening it's Exodus chapter 20, verses 7 through 11. And tonight we consider the second and third commandments. And please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. From Exodus 20, beginning at verse 7, we read in Jesus' name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to think of the Ten Commandments as being all law. And I should probably define what that term means. As Lutherans, we have this distinction between law and gospel. And it's not really just a a Lutheran thing. Uh, It should be a Christian thing, because this distinction between the law and the gospel is a Bible thing. So other Christians will talk about law and gospel too. But as Lutherans, we have a little bit of a reputation for it. We make a big deal of it, and we believe we are right to do so. We see law and gospel as the two main doctrines or teachings of Scripture. They are the two primary messages God speaks to us. We define the law as the divine word which tells us what we must do. Remember that the law is the divine word which tells us what we must do. And we define the gospel, remember this definition too, the gospel as the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the law includes all of God's commands, as well as the threats of punishment. The gospel includes the mercy, grace, redemption, peace, and salvation, which Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. So it's pretty easy when we look at the Ten Commandments uh, to recognize them as law. They are, quite plainly, words from God that tell us what we must and must not do. So we naturally think of the Ten Commandments as the clearest summary of the law. And this is right. But there is also a great deal of gospel implied in the Ten Commandments. Because each one of the commandments is given to protect a certain gift that God has given to us. So every single one of the Ten Commandments does two basic things. They prohibit a certain action, and they protect a gift. So remember this. Each commandment both prohibits and protects. In Luther's explanations in the small catechism, uh, they usually do a pretty good job of helping us recognize these two things. So so the Ten Commandments, they're like a fence around the good gifts that God has given in order to protect these gifts to us, to make sure that we have them and keep them. 
And when we understand this function of the commandments, then we see that that they're not some arbitrary rules that God made up in order to take all the fun out of life. They are gracious commandments that protect and promote what is good. And this is good. Uh, To demonstrate this principle, uh, we'll consider the fifth commandment. I know it's not the the week for that, but um, it's always kind of easy to use the fifth commandment as an example commandment because it's kind of the most common sense of them all. Um, Pretty much everyone acknowledges the virtue of the fifth commandment. It is, thou shalt not kill, or more literally, you shall not commit murder. Murder is bad. Pretty much everyone recognizes that. So it works as a good example commandment. So let's try a little exercise. And and this is one of the things I do with the confirmation kids. And sometimes they do a good job with it. Sometimes they don't. Uh, But I'm going to try it with you too. Two questions. First, what does the fifth commandment prohibit? And just think about that to yourself. What does the fifth commandment prohibit? That's pretty easy. It prohibits murder. It says as much. Uh, Or the unauthorized taking of human life. That's what it prohibits. And second, what gift does the fifth commandment protect? This isn't quite as easy, but I think you'll at least recognize it when you hear it. And I hope you learn how to, to answer this question for the rest of the commandments. The fifth commandment protects God's gift of life. God is the one who gives life to all things, and the commandment against murder protects this gift. So you see how how this works? God is not uh, trying to steal the joy of murder. Instead, he's protecting the gift of life, and this is good. Uh, So we'll back up a little bit, and we'll try to uh, apply this principle of prohibiting and protecting to the earlier commandments. Last week, we considered the introduction and the first commandment. And the first commandment is the one that says, you shall have no other gods before me. So what sin does the first commandment prohibit? It prohibits idolatry, right? The worship of false gods. And so we also ask the other question then, what gift does the first commandment protect? Think about this. Do you see it? It protects God's gift of himself to us. Remember the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Before we even get to the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord thy God. And that forms the basis for the first commandment and the other nine as well. The gift is God himself. And so I should probably clarify, it's not God who needs the protecting, okay? He's capable of protecting himself. It's the giving of himself to us that needs to be protected. The God who created heaven and earth and everything in it has become our God, and he has taken us as his own. And so he has become to us our savior, defender, and provider. So if we go and make something else our God, whether it's a statue of a God or material possessions or our own bellies or whatever it might be, we put this other false God in the space that only the one true God should occupy, and we usurp, we throw away the gift of God in our lives. The the basic problem with all these other false gods is that they're not able to save us. So it's not like God is trying to steal the joy of idolatry. 
Instead, he is protecting the gift of salvation that we receive with him as our God. And this is good. So the first commandment prohibits idolatry and protects God's gift of himself to us. He has become our God, and he wants it to stay that way. So he gave us the first commandment. Now we'll get to the commandments for this evening. Let's apply this to the second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So what sin does the second commandment prohibit? This is pretty easy. It prohibits the vain use of God's name. And I'll explain in a little bit what that means. But first, let's also identify what the commandment protects. Maybe you've figured it out already. If you haven't, I think you'll probably recognize it when you hear it. And you'll see a little bit more clearly how this prohibit and protect thing works. The gift that the second commandment protects is the name of God. God has given his name to us. And Luther's explanation helps us understand how this is a gift to us. Uh, So after Luther says what we should not do with God's name, that is used in vain, he goes on to explain what we should do with it. We should call upon him in every time of need and worship him with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. The gift of God's name to us means that we have access to, to God. He has revealed to us who he is. That's what it means that he has given his name to us. He has revealed his identity as our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and as our Comforter, Counselor, and Teacher, the Holy Spirit. So we use his name, which he has given to us, to call upon him in prayer. His name is a gift to us. So let's back up to the prohibit part of it. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? The common example we think of is when we say, oh my God, without really thinking about it. Or when we drop something on our foot and we use the name of our Savior as an expletive. These are sins that should be avoided. We should also probably avoid the use of OMG or Jeepers Creepers or Jiminy Crickets or all those derivatives of taking the Lord's name in vain. And by the way, I'll give you just a little bit of a tip. If you ever hear the words, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, come out of your mouth in vain, just use them as the start of a prayer and turn your vain use of God's name into an honorable use. That'll help to break the bad habit and replace it with a good habit. These, uh, now, these vain or meaningless uses of God's name are probably what we think of first regarding the second commandment. But there's actually a more serious and dangerous violation which threatens the gift of God's name to us. On this last Sunday, I mentioned that theological error is a sin against the second commandment, and I promised to explain that this evening Uh, Since then, I know you've all been in great suspense to hear the explanation, and your suspense is about to end. When we talk about God's name, we're not just talking about the letters J-E-S-U-S or the Hebrew letters uh, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, which spells Yahweh, the Old Testament name for God. We are talking about the complete revelation of who God is. That's what we mean by his name. It's his identity. And theological error is always some kind of perversion of the truth concerning God. 
Whenever we say something about God that is not true, we pervert the revelation of God's name. That is his identity, and we break the second commandment. To say something, anything about God that is not true is to use his name in vain. For example, if I were to teach you that God is a a rainbow unicorn who comes to turn the snow into skittles, that would be an obvious theological error, right? You would all recognize that. Uh, And it wouldn't be harmless, though. Hopefully it's silly enough that no one would actually believe it, but if by chance someone did believe that heresy, it would rob them of God's true identity. So instead of calling upon the one true God for the good things he has promised, they would call upon some imaginary unicorn for candy. That would be awful, because it wouldn't work. That and every other kind of theological error is a violation of the second commandment. So you can maybe see how the second commandment applies especially to preachers and teachers. It applies to all of us, but especially to preachers and teachers. And I want you to know that this also includes parents and grandparents too, because you are the theological professors in your homes. Everyone who's been given the vocation of making God's name known to someone else must be extremely diligent to use God's name truthfully and not in vain. Because while this commandment can be violated intentionally, I think it's probably more often violated unintentionally, by accident, by simple negligence. This happens when we speak things about God that are mere opinion rather than the actual teachings of Scripture. So don't think that it's harmless to accidentally say things about God that are not true. It's not harmless, and we are responsible for our negligence. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It is imperative to believe and teach rightly about God so that his name might be known and praised and called upon. His name is a great gift that he has given to us so that we might call upon it and be saved as the scriptures promise. And this is, this is really why we are so obsessed with right doctrine. I suspect that perhaps at times um, you might have gotten annoyed with me for my obsession with doctrine. And perhaps I don't always have the gentlest spirit about it, I'll admit that. But this is the reason that we take our doctrine seriously. Correct doctrine makes known the truth of God, so that we might call upon the true God and be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God's name is a gift to us, which the second commandment protects. Now let's look at the third commandment. We'll take this prohibit and protect thing and apply it to the third commandment. What does God prohibit when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Our first guess might be work. God commanded the Israelites to do all their work in six days and to rest on the seventh day. And doing work is certainly one of the ways that we can profane the third commandment. 
But the essence of the commandment is really something else. Some work is allowed on the Sabbath. In the gospel lesson, Jesus taught that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There are certain works that are necessary on the Sabbath. It takes work to get out of bed in the morning and leave the house. People have been warning me, too, that it takes even more work when you have kids. It takes work to get you and your family ready and out the door to get to church so you can honor the Sabbath. You see, it takes work. But if you neglect that work, then you profane the Sabbath. And it still takes work to feed your family. But if you neglect that work, you neglect your vocation and you break all sorts of commandments. It is lawful and even necessary to do good works on the Sabbath. So the thing the commandment prohibits is not necessarily work itself. The commandment specifically prohibits forgetting and profaning the Sabbath. And the word Sabbath simply means rest. Think of the word rest every time you hear the word Sabbath. That's what it is. If your work causes you to not rest in the good gifts your God gives to you, then it is a violation of the commandment. And since we have just defined the word Sabbath as rest, perhaps you can guess by now what the good gift is that the third commandment protects. It protects the gift of rest. And rest is not necessarily the absence of labor. If you just decide to lay in bed all day, it won't take very long before your empty stomach disturbs your rest. You can be super lazy and just not get up, but your stomach will not allow you to rest. And if you have kids to feed, their stomachs will not allow you to rest either. Your laziness will end up not being very restful. But if you get up and fry some bacon and some eggs, things will get better. Breakfast, preparing it, might take a little bit of work, but then you will get to eat it with your thankful and well-behaved children, or maybe just in your quiet and peaceful dining room. And that will be restful, because you did some work. So rest isn't necessarily the absence of labor. It's the enjoyment of the fruits of labor. And then if you have kids, then you can share the fruits of your labor with your children, and they can share in that rest too even though they didn't do any of the work. So rest, it's always the fruit of labor. It's always the result of work, but it's not always the result of the work we do. Sometimes we rest in the fruits of someone else's labor, and this is the kind of rest the third commandment protects. It protects the gift of rest God gives to us as a result of his work. And this goes back to the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. In six days, God created all things in heaven and on earth. The last of his material creation was man. On the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden to rest in the fruits of God's labor. That's the state of the garden. It was just rest for them. It was perfect. And so then God rested from all his labor, and he blessed the seventh day. It was a rest for God and for all of the creation he had made. One of the, the fascinating things about the creation account, and you might have heard this before, but I really can't discuss the Sabbath without mentioning it. One of the fascinating things about the creation account is that there was no end to the seventh day, or at least there wasn't supposed to be. 
As you read through Genesis 1, you'll notice that at the end of each of the first six days, there's a statement that says something like, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Second day, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. And this pattern is repeated for all those six days. But on the seventh day, it wasn't. God just rested, and that was it. Nothing about evening and morning on the seventh day. The week of creation was complete. It didn't have to start over again. Now, now we probably don't take this to mean that the sun didn't go down on that seventh day. It probably did. But when the sun came up again, it wasn't the start of a new week. It wasn't like God had to go back to work creating everything. He'd done it already. It was just another Sabbath day. Every day was a seventh day, a Sabbath day, where Adam, Eve, God, and all of the creation just enjoyed the fruits of God's labor. This state of rest, which God had created, was supposed to last forever. But, of course, you know the rest of the story. Snake, fruit, ate, die. The rest was gone. God's rest was destroyed. And from that point on, the entire Bible is the story of God restoring this rest. The devil had destroyed it, but God was determined to fix it. And this is really the whole point of Scripture. The story of what God has done to restore his perfect rest. This is the whole point of Jesus coming down into this chaotic unrest. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead gives us rest from the burden of sin. He's even promised to come again and raise the dead. On that day, he will give us rest from death. He will take us into his new creation where we will have perfect and eternal rest in the fruits of his labor. So the, the Sabbath command has never really been about resting in the fruits of our own labor. It has always been about resting in the fruits of God's labor. So, so when we take a day out of our week to not go to work, what we're doing is we're really resting in God's promise to give us our daily bread. And we're reminded that even the bread we work for is his gift to us. We, we stop, we rest, we realize the world didn't stop turning. God is still providing. The physical rest we practice when we take a day to not work, it's a confession of faith that God will provide for our daily needs. If we blow off the commandment, then we lose this rest, and we also lose the greater spiritual rest God desires to give us on the Sabbath. Even more important than the physical rest we receive when we don't go to work is the spiritual rest that God gives us through his word and through the sacraments. This is what Sunday morning is all about. It is through his word and through the gift of Jesus' body and blood that God delivers to us the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, and everlasting salvation. This is the the whole point of going to church, to receive spiritual rest for our souls. You spend six days and 20-some hours out there in the world trying to live according to the law. This is how your, your lives go all the time. You struggle and strive to be faithful all that time in your vocations. And it can be wearisome, and, and sins, they just pile up on our consciences. 
And then you get maybe one to three hours a week here, depending on whether or not you come to Sunday school or midweek services, which apparently you do because you're here. <laughs> but it's not an ideal ratio, right? And this is why every Sunday morning service will always proclaim to you the forgiveness of your sins. We will also consider how God desires for us to live, but to withhold forgiveness or to replace it with something else that seems more relevant would be to steal your Sabbath rest from you. We all need this rest for our souls. And this concept of spiritual rest is why Luther was absolutely right to interpret the third commandment as being about worship. Christian worship is simply God serving us with his gifts so that we might have rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Now, this has to be the part where I I tell you, too, that skipping church is a sin. And every time I've, I've done this, I've recalled this is the absolute epitome of preaching to the choir because you're obviously here. Uh, but sometimes we're tempted to not be here, or you might know someone who's neglected this and they need to be corrected. So I'll mention it again. That skipping church is actually a sin. And I know if you're sick or if the weather is bad, sometimes it's wise to stay home. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But when you think the, the preacher is boring or repetitive, which he sometimes is, or when you think you've heard everything he has to say, or when you just want to do something else, Skipping church is a sin. So when you have to be out of town, find a faithful church to visit. And if you need help asking, I'd be happy to help you find one. But just skipping it altogether is a sin. Because the commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We do this when we regard God's word and the preaching of it as holy and gladly hear and learn it. To despise or neglect this is a sin against the third commandment. God prohibits this despising because he wants to protect his gift of rest to us. So so I sincerely hope that you don't think of this commandment as a burdensome commandment. It's not supposed to be. If I give you that impression, I failed. This is a joyful and restful commandment. God prohibits neglecting the Sabbath simply because he desires to protect his gift of eternal life to us. His gift of eternal rest, it's what he wants us to have and to rejoice in. This rest that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ has earned this rest for you. He's done it by by doing the dirty and grueling work of suffering and dying on our behalf. That's his work. So our sins, which are many, are forgiven for his sake. And he has risen from the dead, opening this heavenly rest to us and demonstrating his power to raise us from the dead. And so God the Father, on account of Jesus and his work, has promised to welcome you into his eternal rest. This is what we preview, what we look forward to, and what God has guaranteed to us, and what he protects. Amen. And may the peace of God, 
which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.